Sierra. Most of you know me from the Hide and Seek podcast discussion group on Facebook. Do you enjoy the Hide and Seek podcast? Would you like to show your support? Head over to Apple iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and follow us so you never miss an episode. You can interact with us as well as share your thoughts, ideas, and theories on this season's episodes by joining the Hide and Seek Podcast Discussion Group. Find us by searching Hide and Seek Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. The following podcast may contain strong language and is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Sweet dreams are made of this. 24-Hour News Aid's Brady Gillum went to Sturgis tonight to speak with the missing woman's mother about what may have happened to her daughter. I can tell you where she most likely is. I hadn't seen anybody that I felt comfortable saying anything to until today. The stories they tell are pretty fucked. They're pretty freaking gruesome. I kept all the text messages, Facebook messages, the messages between me and Brittany. I have all of them. I have everything. I told him, I said, I'll kill all the motherfuckers. And I was going to have my people fucking take care of it. I'll just say Brittany's name out of nowhere just to see what somebody says. Because this little town around here would be hard to hide something like that. Because eventually everything comes out. To me, some days I don't believe anything happened to her. I think she just left. This is Hide and Seek, Season 3. I'm your host, James Basinger. Hey guys, what inspired you to start a podcast? And out of all the missing person cases, why this one? After three years of podcasting, these are the two most common questions I get asked. If you've already been following Hide and Seek and have listened to my previous two seasons, you can probably answer those questions for me. Considering that some of you tuning in don't know who I am or why I'm inserting myself into Britney's case, here's the condensed version. In 2019, I was seven years into my career as an insurance agent. The company I had sold insurance through required agents to provide images of the spaces such as homes or rentals, storefronts, we intended to insure. It was underwriting requirements. Kind of annoying. But as you can imagine, I was on the road a lot, which allowed me to listen to a lot of podcasts. And with no experience or education, I thought to myself, you should try making a podcast. I sometimes tend to bite off more than I can chew. I can admit that. But that partly comes from with how my siblings and I were raised we're ambitious and once we decide to do something there's very little that can stop us so i started a podcast focusing on missing person cases during my first season back in 2019 i started looking for a missing person case somewhat close to where i lived washington state now during my search i came across an old case about a single mother of two who went missing from her home on a chilly friday night in march of 2009 this woman was nancy moyer just being honest my first season exceeded my expectations. After 10 years of no answers in Nancy's case, spoiler alert, we finally had a big break. And it wasn't long after my first season, I had developed an itch to investigate a new case. My second season was focused on a young black male named Logan Schindelman. It was the middle of the day in May of 2016 when witnesses driving along I-5 noticed Logan's Sebring slowly start to roll from the right shoulder of I-5 
across three lanes of traffic and eventually colliding against the middle barrier and coming to a stop. One of the witnesses who sees Logan's car roll across the I-5 also notices a white male jump out of the passenger side door and run into the woods. That male was not Logan. Logan hasn't been seen since. When I investigate cases, I quickly develop this dogged mentality. Reminds me in a way of those movies where the detective becomes so closed off in the outside world because he gets more and more obsessed or fixated with discovering the truth. I've spent many nights not going to bed until the sun comes up, or frequently forgetting to eat meals because I'm glued to my computer screen trying to find the needle in the haystack. I should find balance, I know. Here's the thing. In the two years of deep diving and investigating two cases, if you're going to find answers, you're going to have to go above and beyond. Have the uncomfortable and unsettling encounters with people. Push the line to find the truth. And I understand that not everyone enjoys or welcomes you prodding around in their personal lives or being asked private questions. These encounters have become somewhat part of the norm. It's never my intention to upset people. Quite the opposite. I try to live by the phrase, you can catch more bees with honey, but it doesn't always work. If some podcaster came around asking questions, I'd probably have my guard up too. Not all, but most people I talk to, after explaining why I'm asking the questions I ask, quickly understand and tend to bring their guard down. We usually find common ground. What is the truth? Most people want to know the truth and want justice for whoever is responsible for one's disappearance. As of last year in 2021, after nine years in insurance, I decided to close my agency and walked away from insurance. I'm rolling the dice and I'm pursuing a new career, a career in podcasting. I love this job and I love helping others. This leads me to my second most common question. Why this case? As you might imagine, I consider multiple factors when picking a case, but I'll share one of the main factors I look at with you, public exposure. I focus on cases that don't generate as much media attention. It feels like giving the family members who feel like their loved one was forgotten a bullhorn that reaches millions. Don't get it confused. All cases are equally important. It's just some get more attention than others. This brings us back to our new case. When determining which case was next, I decided to take my investigation outside of Washington State. To my fellow Washingtonians, this doesn't mean I won't be back, I'm just spreading my wings a little, that's all. Before exploring my third missing person case, considering the amount of workload it takes, I asked a friend of mine, Sarah Joe, for some help. Over the next couple of weeks, Sarah collected multiple missing person cases. If you don't know who Sarah is, she's a member of the following. National Association for the Education of Young Children, Coalition Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, and National Organization for Victim Assistance. And if that's not enough, she's also graduated at the top of her class, a bachelor's in criminology with a minor in forensic psychology, human services and advocacy, legal studies with a minor in police policy and procedure. I can go on. Her resume is strong. Sarah also helped organize the Facebook Hide and Seek discussion group, which I strongly suggest you join. I began reading over case details and discussing with Sarah which case I felt was best for me. I made my decision. It has all the markings of an unsolved mystery right here in West Michigan. A young woman leaves her grandmother's house, gets into a single car crash, and then vanishes. 24-Hour News Aid's Brady Gillum went to Sturgis tonight to speak with the missing woman's mother about what may have happened to her daughter. It's around here where Brittany Shank was last seen. That was the end of November. Now her mom hopes that someone somewhere will have a key. 
Season 3 of Hide and Seek will focus on the disappearance of Brittany Wallace. This case takes place in Burr Oak, Michigan. Population, less than 1,000. Remember earlier when I mentioned selecting cases that haven't been heavily covered by the media? Well, the news clip you guys just heard was the only clip I could find. If you research the case, you'll stumble across some homemade YouTube or TikTok videos about Brittany's case. But that seems to be all the major media or local news covers there is. One news clip, 38 days after Brittany went missing. I'll keep it simple. The phrase that's in the back of every sales marketer's mind, and it's the same reason why recognized brands spend billions of dollars every year on marketing and advertising. Out of sight, out of mind. Unfortunately, that's what seems to have happened to Brittany. And why does this happen? I have a few ideas, but I'll reserve those thoughts for another time. It's been almost a year since I began researching Brittany's case. To be honest, I thought I'd have this episode out by now. The goal was for January 2022, but I quickly realized this case was nothing like my first two seasons when I started my initial investigation. Brittany's case is full of red herrings. When considering who could be responsible for her disappearance, almost everyone has been named a person of interest. That's not an exaggeration either. Brittany's mom, dad, sister, friends, estranged husband, her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, cartel, sex trafficking, the list goes on. I'm not a detective and I'm not even a private investigator, but from experience and someone who follows a lot of true crime stories, it isn't normal to have these many theories and suspects. So what's going on here? I'm going to take you guys back to the beginning. July 2021. Let's begin. One of my first steps was requesting to join one of the Facebook groups for Brittany. The purpose of this group is to bring awareness to her disappearance. As I waited for approval to join the group, I continued looking at other websites such as WebSleuths, Reddit, YouTube. It's an easy way to gain insight into a case without speaking to anyone. You never know, you could be reading a comment posted by the killer themselves. This might surprise you, but they often can't refrain and insert themselves into the case. I was up late at night doing some research on the case when I got a Facebook notification. I was accepted into both of Brittany's Facebook missing groups. Yes, I said both, and I promise you'll understand later. As expected, I decided to make contact with those closest to Brittany. I started figuring out who her family, friends, and lovers were, and also who the administrators were for both groups. I sent a select few the following message. Hello, my name is James Basinger. I'm the host and creator of the true crime podcast, Hide and Seek. I investigate missing person cases, hoping to speak with you about Brittany Shank's case. While I waited for responses, I continued to put together the timeline of the events leading to Brittany's disappearance. Here's what happened. It was November 30th, 2018. Brittany has just asked her boyfriend Sheldon if she could borrow his car to do their laundry at her grandmother's house. It's important to know that Brittany and her grandma were very close. Sheldon agrees, and Brittany takes off, leaving in a red 2006 Mercury Milan. As for what time Brittany leaves Sheldon's apartment, I don't know yet. Time of arrival to Grandma's house? Unknown. And strangely, we can't figure this time out. Here's why. Five witnesses saw Brittany at Grandma's house. Grandma, Grandpa, Brittany's Uncle Scott, and his two boys, who at the time were 12 and 15. While we don't know Brittany's arrival time at Grandma's, we do know Brittany's no longer alone. A second person is with her. 
She was with an unknown man in his 20s with short blonde hair and mutton chop sideburns. One major issue with this case is misinformation that spreads like wildfire. I've read conflicting stories here. For example, the unknown male's body statue. In one post, someone wrote that the male was short, five foot six to five foot eight. Go to a different group or website, and it says he's tall, five ten to six foot. Same issue with his body weight, slim versus bulky. If you're asking yourself, how does it get this complicated when you have five eyewitnesses? You're not alone. I mean, how is that even possible? Later into the evening, Brittany and this unknown male leave Grandma's house. The time being around 8:30 p.m. The timestamp comes from Greg Wallace, Brittany's father. Greg posted on Facebook that he spoke with his mother, aka Grandma, and from her recollection, Brittany and the man with her left around 8:30 p.m. The two hop back into the Mercury Milan and head north. A little over three miles away from Grandma's residence, Brittany and the male get into a minor accident. We don't know the cause, but the road they're traveling on naturally takes a sharp right turn and continues on Workman Road. Side note: there is a dirt road to the left, but it doesn't appear to be a road someone would use unless they own the land. Whoever was driving Sheldon's Mercury Milan didn't turn at all. They continued straight and awkwardly noseplant the vehicle into a position so that the tires were elevated and couldn't grab traction to reverse. This is where things get even more complicated. After the accident, the two flee on foot, going their separate ways, abandoning the Mercury Milan. Two witnesses see Brittany not long after this accident. Witness number one is an elderly man by the name of John. He's a widower and lives alone. On this cold Friday night. John is watching TV when he notices his garage light sensor turns on. John assumes it to be his cat wanting to come inside, so he opens the door, and to his surprise, sees Brittany. She's wearing a pink shirt, shorts or jeans that's still to be undetermined, and no socks or shoes. Her arms have scratches on them, and her feet appear to be bleeding. How severe? I don't know. It's essential to understand the weather conditions at this time. It's freezing, 32 degrees if you want to be exact, and there's fog beginning to roll in. Brittany begins to explain to John how she and her boyfriend were in an accident and that her boyfriend ran off. She asks to use John's phone for help. He says yes. Concerned for her safety, John offers for Brittany to come inside where it's warmer. She politely declines. John grabs his cell phone and hands it to Brittany to use. While Brittany uses the phone, John goes back inside to grab a sweatshirt for them each to use. As I understand it, Brittany attempts to call her grandma's cell phone, but the calls don't go through. Brittany then tries calling 911. Those calls are also dropped. John returns with a green hoodie, and Brittany shares that she isn't getting a signal. John suggests she use his landline, handing the green hoodie over to Brittany. John returns inside, grabs his landline phone, and calls 911. 911, what's your emergency? Greg, Brittany's dad, posted in the Facebook group that the first 911 call made from John's landline was at 8:51 p.m. John begins to explain to dispatch what Brittany shared with him, how she and her boyfriend were in an accident, and that her boyfriend ran off. Now, at some point during this 911 call, Brittany abruptly decides to leave. And walks away. I was told that she walked away as soon as they wanted to know her name. While still on the phone, 
John tries to convince her to stay, but is unsuccessful. Brittany has already made her decision and continues to leave John's property. Dispatch tells John to hang up and try to bring Brittany back inside. John does so. He ends the call and walks outside. He looks around and shouts for Brittany, but she's gone. John returns inside of his home and calls 911 to tell dispatch he was unsuccessful. They tell him an officer is on the way. This brings us to witness number two. The exact time of this encounter is unknown, but it's believed to have been right before or after John's interaction with Brittany. Here's what happened. The teenage boy is home, alone. He's hanging out inside when he notices a person walking up to his house. It's Brittany. The two lock eyes, and Brittany just stops and stands still. After making eye contact, maybe a second or two, the young teenager hears someone knocking at the front door, the opposite end of the house. You should know about this area is that home burglaries were somewhat of an issue. So this unusual encounter with an unknown woman walking towards one side of his house, followed immediately by hearing someone knock at the front door, the teen chose to call his mom. Mom then calls a neighbor friend, requesting he check on her son and investigate the situation. By the time the neighbor arrives, Brittany and whoever knocked on the front door are gone. Brittany was never seen again. Okay, hopefully you have just as many questions as I do. Who is the male with Brittany? If Brittany says that she and her boyfriend got into an accident, case closed then, right? It's Sheldon, but it's not that simple. Does Sheldon actually fit the description? White male, 20s, mutton chops. If we have five witnesses who all saw this man with Brittany, wouldn't they be able to ID him? And why would the male leave Brittany after they crashed? What caused the crash in the first place? Why doesn't Brittany have any shoes on? And where did the scratches on her arm come from? And why did Brittany abruptly leave John's house after making contact with 911? Brittany had a cell phone. Where is it? When investigating a case, you focus on all the minor details, scouring through the scene with a fine-tooth comb. I soak up any and all information like a sponge and just process it. This is my first time taking on a case out of my home state, as I mentioned before. I anticipated particular challenges, but also expected some unforeseen ones as well. When investigating Nancy and Logan's cases, I was practically within arm's reach of my investigation, only a few hours away from where I wanted to go or where I needed to be. I could coordinate interviews on the fly, postpone a meeting, and see them the following week. With this case, it's been different. I can't just jump in my car and take off. Another major challenge, time difference. Someone who wants to interview at 8 a.m. Eastern time zone means I'm up at 5, or the calls and messages you didn't plan for at 3 a.m. I want to say one more thing before diving into Brittany's case. Brittany had her ups and downs in life like we all do, maybe more for her compared to others. You're going to hear her story. And though you may not always find it relatable, she didn't deserve it, whatever happened to her. I don't care if her life story has some rough bumps in it or not. She was a mother of four, a daughter, a sister, a friend, and her story was not finished.
I started sending Facebook messages to family members and admins who ran the missing pages for Brittany, made a few calls, left a ton of voicemails, got a lot of invalid numbers. Early on, I came across a post on one of the missing Brittany pages. I noticed a woman by the name of Christina McKeever. She seemed to have in-depth knowledge and was close to Brittany. I messaged her. Hey, Christina, I'm reading through your post on Brittany's page. I'd like to speak with you regarding the details of her case. Are you able to speak over the phone? Christina got back in touch with me and gave me the green light. She married a man named Patrick, a.k.a. Jesse. Jesse shares a child with Jessica, Brittany's mom, and his name is Victor. First of all, I'm a Christian. And don't get me wrong, because, like, I, I swear probably more than a sailor does, and I smoke pot, you know? I mean, I'm a real person. This is Christina. She's continued to help with the investigation basically from the beginning. As messy as this case is, Christina starts her interview focusing on every parent's worst nightmare and where she stands with Jessica, Brittany's mother. But I do have a heart. Nobody's perfect. Everybody sins. And so, like, I mean... I don't want you to get that twisted. Like, uh, I just, as a mom, I could never fathom. I only have one biological child, and I could never fathom going through what Jessica is right now. Something I'll share with you about Christina, as I've gotten to know her over the past year, she's someone who tends to focus on forgiveness versus struggle. Not that she downplays the action, but it's like a wrestling match between grace and sin when listening to her. Before my initial call with Christina, I did some reading and noticed that she was someone who obtained a lot of information and details of the case. Because I stuck around with Jessica, and in the very beginning, I work for the post office, so I have a lot of, well, I worked for the state of Michigan for three years. I mean, if you look at my friends list, you see I have, like, lots and lots of friends. I, I just have a very huge resource availability to me, and because I worked at the post office, and I was in Sturgis at the time that Brittany came up missing, it was convenient for me because I could find place people where people lived and stuff. And, and I went and searched a few times with Jessica and I went to all the houses and talked to people. I talked to the old man a few times. The old man has passed away. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. It was about a month ago, I think or so. Damn. John, AKA the elderly man passed away, but we still have six key witnesses. Grandma, grandpa, uncle Scott, Brittany's two cousins, and the young teenager who saw Brittany walking up to his driveway. And Jessica and Ashley, they always still reach out to me when there's something new and they think it's like real. They'll reach out to me and then I'm the one who always has all the information stored. And I'll tell you this, like from the beginning, Jessica went in hard. She really did. She was out there every day, all day, didn't sleep. You're going to have a hard time. I'll tell you now, you're going to have a hard time talking to Greg. He really never wanted to talk to anybody. He never helped look for her. I don't know what his excuses are, and I really don't care why. I mean, if it were my kid, I would probably be out there every day like Jessica looking for her. I don't know if I would want to be the one to find her, and maybe that's why Greg didn't want to be a part of it. I don't know what his excuses are, but you're going to have a hard time talking to Greg. As for Greg, Brittany's father, Hearing that he didn't participate in any of the search parties makes me wonder why, before assuming the worst. If you recall, in my first season, Thurston County Sheriff's Office requested Nancy's separated husband at the time, Bill, not to go on the search parties. There are good reasons for it. I know, 
from law enforcement's perspective, asking the separated husband Bill not to go on the search party for his missing wife probably has more to do with him initially being a person of interest. But Christina's adamant, I'm going to have a hard time getting Greg to talk. Because John had passed away, I was definitely wanting to know more about what she remembered of her conversation with John. Um, I saw his phone log myself. The elderly man's? Yeah, he had the old school flip phone. So I saw the calls from Brittany to grandma's house and then the call to the 911 and the call to 911 again after that. So Brittany actually tried to call grandma first. Grandma didn't answer. So Brittany called 911. It was only a really short call. I think what happened was the call dropped because of where it was at and he had that flip phone. The bottom line is this. Grandma gave a report of that young man that was with her. There's only so many people that it could have matched. And I'll be honest, like at the time that fit her current boyfriend. From what I've read so far is that grandma did not recognize who the boy was, like she'd never met him before. If she had a boyfriend, I would have thought that grandma would already have known of the boyfriend. Well, boyfriend was actually, and this is according to Jessica, boyfriend has been a family friend for years of Brittany's. Now, if that had been the first time that Brittany brought him over, because Brittany wasn't in that relationship for very long. So if that was like the first time that he'd ever actually came into the house and saw grandma, grandma may not have recognized him because it had been so long since she had seen him. Does that make sense? Yeah, but grandma doesn't have any memory challenges, is there? Like- Jessica says that she used to drink a lot. Now that's from Jessica. I spoke to grandma and I said this to her and she says, I can't even drink anymore because of the medications that I'm on. The other thing, it wasn't just grandma that was there. Brittany's uncle was there and two of her cousins were there and they all seen this boy. So Nobody could identify him if they saw him. The boyfriend at the time, you don't know his name? Yeah, um, Sheldon. I immediately started drafting my Facebook message to Sheldon. I came across a few Facebook accounts for him, so I messaged all of them. Speaking of Facebook, Christina started telling me how something odd had recently happened between her and one of Brittany's Facebook accounts. Her most current one, I was her friend on there, and it's gone. I don't know where it went. It's been gone for a few months now. And I, I said something to Ashley. I said, is there a reason why I can't find Brittany's page? And she's like, yeah, that's a good question. The reason why I said that to Ashley is because Ashley has had controls over Brittany's Facebook. And she, and she knows I know that. What's Ashley's last name? On Facebook, it's Ashley Marie. Yes, I've seen her, her post before. So, Ashley, a friend of Britt's, somehow has control over Brittany's Facebook account. Christina confronts Ashley about Brittany's Facebook no longer being friends with Christina. I'd like to point out, Brittany had multiple Facebook accounts. The Facebook account in question is the account Brittany was using when she went missing. At this point in time, I had already sent Brittany's dad, Greg, a Facebook message requesting to speak. I hadn't heard back yet or seen that he had opened the message. This happens when someone wants to message you, but the two of you aren't friends on Facebook. I've found a unique way around this, as long as the person I'm trying to contact, settings allow it. Sometimes people don't respond to messages not because they're ignoring you, at least that's what I hope, but it could easily be because they don't check their message request folder. Quick example, person A posts something on Facebook and person B wants to contact person A, but they're not Facebook friends. 
person B can comment on person A's post, creating a notification for person A. That's precisely what I did with Greg. On a post he created on the Missing Britney page, I replied to Greg's post, please contact me, I sent you a direct message. Not long after commenting on Greg's post, Ashley replied to mine. She wrote, If you're James Basinger, it would probably do you some good to private message me. Whether you choose to or not, one word of advice. Tread carefully. This is not a case that is taken lightly by those who care, and it is not one that is up for the picking to score some bonus likes or views or to help anyone catch their big break. Brittany is not entertainment. She is a real person with family that loves and misses her, friends that love and miss her, and a few of us out here still searching for justice and trying to bring her home. I didn't expect that. Obviously, this friend of Brittany's, Ashley, feels strongly about finding out what happened to Brittany, her friend. Ashley's making it known she doesn't like the idea of someone coming in with wrong intentions or trying to score some sort of big payday off of Brittany's disappearance. I understand. I even admire her efforts. Even though her friend has been missing for nearly three years, she's still trying to protect Brittany. It's clear Ashley's devoted to finding out what happened to Brittany and seems to be very active in her own investigation of things. She's an admin, along with a few others, including some family members. It's safe to assume Ashley is someone I definitely wanted to speak with. Still, when Christina confronted Ashley about no longer being friends with Brittany on Facebook, Ashley responded, That's a great question. Not the answer I expected. I continued reaching out to family members. I was caught off guard when one sibling replied, No thanks. We don't agree with anything that Jessica, her mom, is doing. There obviously seems to be a strong divide between some of Brittany's family members, but I was finally able to make contact with Brittany's brother, Victor. First, I need to I, I need to clarify a couple things about yeah. Jessica. So her and I, we don't speak. We haven't spoken months. She'll randomly send me some drug-infused meth head message, and that's what I get in my inbox, but uh, we don't communicate. She left me when I was like 15 for a dude up in the UP of Michigan. At 16, I was deemed homeless by the state of Michigan. Like, that's public knowledge, too. I mean, you can go search my name on the internet, and you'll find stuff about that. I don't know if the the relationship between Brittany and my mom has ever really came out, but it was bad. When Brittany went missing, they were not on talking terms. Did you ever hear the recording? It was messages recording going back and forth between them. Yeah, okay. Obviously, Brittany and her mother Jessica's relationship was not under the best of terms when Brittany went missing. As Victor explained it, the two were not speaking. He asked if I had heard the voice messages between Jessica and Brittany. On one of the Facebook group pages, there's a video clip showing someone holding a phone and playing the audio voice memos. I'm going to play you those clips. You don't see who the person behind the recorder is, but they play each audio in order. Just a warning. It's a hard listen. Here's Jessica. First off, you destroyed yourself. You are a toxic waste to everything and everybody you touch. Secondly, no, I'm not going to threaten you about jail. I'm not going to threaten you about Daniel. I am kind of threatening about Daniel. <clears throat> but um, you need to shut your fucking big ass mouth. Don't be making phone calls. Don't be sending fucking people to, to send messages. Like, you are full of shit and everybody knows it. 
Everybody knows you can't have kids. Brittany, you're not fucking pregnant. You're sick in the head. There's something wrong with you. Seek help. That's what you need to do. Immediately. You fuck with people's lives. You fucking tormented mine. You torment your dads. You torment everybody's. You torment Daniel. You torment your children. You fucking suck, dude. You you suck. You suck the life right out of fucking people. Nobody likes you. We do not want to talk to you. We do not want to hear from you. Trust and believe God would not be as stupid to give you another chance and give you life again. He would not be that fucking retarded. This is Brittany. Yep, and you're blocked again. And no, actually, I'm doing fucking great. Thank you. But you have a good one. And don't contact me anymore. You're not my mom. You mean nothing to me. And as far as Daniel, that was my closure. I don't really give a fuck. Um, other than that, I don't have anything to say. Daniel's a worthless piece of shit who will never amount to anything, nor be anything. He's a big-ass fucking dope head, and I don't want anything to do with that or anybody who does it. So, have a nice life. Stop contacting me. And no, I get to see my kids on a regular basis. All of them. Thank you. Stop texting him, stop calling him, stop emailing him, stop everything, stop having people contact him. Or I am going to let everybody know where little Miss Brittany is at. And I'm going to ruin your life. Stay the fuck away from everybody. I was just granted visitation with my boys, so it doesn't really matter. You do you and I'll do me. And you can live your dope style life with Daniel. And let him keep ruining your life, too. He's a piece of shit. I don't give a fuck about him. And I moved back out of state, so it doesn't really matter. And, yep, that's why my dad talks to me on a regular basis now, too, huh? And as far as Daniel goes, I'm with somebody, so I don't really give a shit. Like I said, that was just my closure. I could care less about him. There is a lot to unpack here. But this exchange between Brittany and her mother, Jessica, happened October 31st, a month before Brittany disappeared. The two talk about a guy named Daniel. Brittany says she's over Daniel, also talks about being able to visit her kids. We'll revisit that topic later. This obviously doesn't look good for Jessica, but at the same time, she seems to be very active in search parties and putting Facebook groups together to spread awareness about her daughter's disappearance. Was this private conversation between the two just an emotional outburst, or was this the relationship at its worst? As a parent, it's hard to listen to. I reached out to Jessica. We scheduled a time to meet during my trip to Sturgis, Michigan. At this time, we hadn't spoken much on the phone, one time, really. But she knows I want to talk about this conversation with Brittany. I look forward to hearing what she has to say. Now, something that stood out to me, Brittany said, and as far as Daniel goes, I'm with somebody, so I don't really give a shit. I'm curious if Brittany is referring to Sheldon. Remember, Sheldon was her boyfriend when she went missing on November 30th. These audio clips show the date recorded October 31st, a month prior. Is she referring to Sheldon, or is someone else in the picture? So, I'm not... You've probably talked to a lot of people, you've talked to a lot of people in my family, and it sounds like you've probably figured out that most of them are not in a stable place emotionally or even physically. So 
it's it's hard to gauge what's actual factual and what's just theories. Actually, I can talk to her, but she also goes off the rails all the time. Like she just <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, she deleted me off the Facebook page as moderator and admin. Something's going on with the admins and that she needs to get to the bottom of it. And then she just ended up randomly adding me back. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't, I didn't know who Ashley was before Brittany went missing, but apparently she's one of her best friends. Did Morgan. you see my comment? I had commented and but I said tread carefully. This, this is, is Ashley. This is oh. not something we take lightly. This is not someone or up for grabs for someone looking for views or a quick shot to fame. It wasn't long after messaging her, we jumped on a video call. This being our first conversation, I had some convincing to do. Remember, Ashley has a lot of information that I want to know about, and she seems to be steering the ship. Today is not about us going over all the details, going over what my, what the purpose of this phone call is to, to one, introduce myself, to explain what I do, how I do it, why I do it, and then asking for your support in, in that process. Okay. I was explaining so, to Ashley how my show focuses on one case for the entire show. season. And that's good. There's a, there's a, there's, it brings awareness and that's great. My approach is a little bit more, I want to focus on one through the entire season because my, again, might my, two my, seasons for this. If you missed that, Ashley said, you might need two seasons for this. With all of Ashley's information, I started to think the same thing. But then she says this. And like I said in the message to you, I've got probably the most damning piece of evidence in my possession right now. Do you really? From her account, yeah. Okay. From the moment Britt went missing, a voicemail to her from Daniel Walters saying, you won't like my next move. The very moment she went missing, 9, or 8.58 p.m., November 30th, 2018. Ashley said she has probably the most damning piece of evidence in her possession right now. It's a voicemail left on Jessica's phone. Ashley says it's from a man named Daniel Walters telling Jessica, you won't like my next move. This voicemail happens the day Brittany disappears, November 30th at 8.58 p.m. Ashley sent me the voicemail. Before sharing with you, I'd like to add that there are more than one voicemail from this particular male, who Ashley claims is Daniel Walters. His phone number and voicemails will be our focus for now. November 30th, 2018. Voicemail number one, 2 11 p.m. Hey, get all of me here soon. All right, sit. Voicemail number two, 5.59 p.m. What the hell is going on here? I hope you ain't playing fucking games with me. I swear to God, I will, I will find you. Voicemail number three, 8.58 p.m. You ain't gonna like my next move, I'm telling you. You better get a hold of me. My initial thoughts. Ashley could be onto something here. How bizarre is it that this man leaves Jessica a voicemail saying, you're not gonna like my next move, just minutes after Brittany and the unknown male get into a minor accident? I quickly jump onto Google Maps. I start pinpointing how long it would take Brittany to walk from the accident to John's. Remember, Brittany's barefoot. It's 32 degrees out with freezing fog. According to Maps, it's roughly about a 10 minute walk. An important detail to remember, John said Brittany's feet were bleeding and she also had scratches on her arms. Was the bleeding from her feet because she was trying to hurry to John's due to the frigid temperatures or was she running from someone? something to think about. 
We know the voicemail was received at 8.58 p.m. Greg, Brittany's father, posted on Facebook that the call from John's house to 911 was at 8.51 p.m. What about the seven-minute time difference? Remember that Brittany left the house while John was on the phone. If this man is calling Jessica at 8.58 p.m., that would mean, while leaving this voicemail, he could be chasing Brittany or possibly already abducted her. Also, is this the male who was with Brittany at Grandma's? Lots of questions. On the other hand, I mean, if you abducted or planned on hurting someone and you're in the act of doing it, would you call and leave a voicemail like this? That would be idiotic, right? Ashley isn't shy about how she feels law enforcement is handling Brittany's case. She said she emailed both detectives and hasn't heard back. Whether they have looked into it or not, I definitely will. Ashley also seems to have a strong opinion about Jessica and her knowing what happened to Brittany. I felt the need to address this topic now. And I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I'm not here to side with you. I'm not here to side with Jessica. If somebody thinks I'm going to come in here and take sides or pick sides or mediate or what I will not I just do. hope you're open-minded enough to accept the whole mother involvement thing. A lot of people aren't, and they are all seeing it now. So, I just need to know that you have the ability to take your mind there. She wouldn't be the first mother. The last I know. Mother, the society has an issue. So I think that's why, I honestly think that's why the cops are dragging their feet so hard. Because she is on their suspect list. But to come out publicly with that, if they're wrong, that's huge. Obviously, there's a lot of, just between my conversation with Christina, golly, there's a lot of rabbit holes that we're going to have to go down. I have been down just about all of them. That's why I have this whole set. The same day you messaged me, I'm glad I didn't see your message until today because that was Britt's birthday. And some random woman messaged me on the same day with one huge piece of information that tied everything together. And I had just found that voicemail two days before, and it went with the voicemail. No one else I'm talking to her. She's terrified. And that's kind of where we're at. I made it known. Jessica's already got in for me. So there's people out there that know. They're not speaking because they're scared. So I said, come, bring it here. It came from me. I'll take it all. Put the target. It, I've already got the target. Like, my boyfriend and I are already ready for anything because we know what Jessica's capable of. No need to put anyone else out there. And it's working. They're coming and they're talking. Finally. And I've got this whole set of fucking information that hasn't even... I've told her dad. Her dad hasn't spoke to anyone in two years. Greg got called in for DNA something. They had him for... Two and a half hours, I think it was. And it ended with the cops accusing him of having her in rehab somewhere, hidden in rehab somewhere. Because cops can't pull rehab charts or whatever. Like, they can't find out because it's confidential or something. I'm not sure. But after two and a half hours when they came, when they ended with that, he was livid. He said, why the fuck would I have called my daughter in missing if I put her in rehab? Stormed out of there and he had not talked to them since. What's going on here? Greg getting called for DNA. And then he's asked if Brittany is really in a rehab center. If Greg was the one who reported her missing, why would they ask him that? I can only imagine how frustrated he felt. Remember when I said I'd explain the two different Facebook groups? Here's Ashley's version as to what happened. If you go through that Brittany's page, May 1st is the first time I started talking. And I told everyone, if you want to keep throwing me under the bus, go for it, but it's not getting this anywhere. And that's basically what I said. I said, this person's been cleared, this person's been cleared, move the fuck on. We need to focus 
on the actual possibilities here, mm-hmm. what we know, mm-hmm. and build on it. Quit talking shit, quit making up stories, because it's going to be another two years with nothing to show for it. If that's all we're doing. That's all that's been happening. Unfortunately, drama. And that's, yeah, they're treating it as fucking entertainment. And she's not entertainment. The one that you're getting tagged in is the one I took over when I took over Jessica's stuff. I kicked her out, cleaned it up. But it had turned into such a shit show. And all these rumors about she was burned, she was dismembered, she was this, she was that. Her dad's having to read all this shit. Ashley said she took over the Facebook group and kicked Jessica out. The reason for it? The group had become a shit show with rumors and theories. He left the group. He refused to talk to anyone. And just two days ago, he actually asked me about you, if I'd heard of you. Oh, I said really? no. He's like, well, he wants to talk to me about my daughter. I don't think I'm going to. But, well, if you want to, point him in my direction because I emailed both detectives. I told him I have these voicemails from the exact time she went missing and they haven't responded and he said that doesn't surprise me because they're pretty much good for nothing i said but greg we need something we need i need resources i can only do so much and i've done a lot i've got a lot i've got nowhere to take it yeah. i've been trying to find a pi or something anything to take this information to that's why this is happening right now because you're like godsend i asked chris about you first i said is it legit for like two hours. Ashley and I spoke for four hours. We primarily talked about Brittany's case, but we also talked about what she's going through personally. As the days progressed, Ashley and I spoke often. There are tons of screenshots of texting conversations, voicemails, images, duplicates, social media conversations, and comments. As we investigate Brittany's story, you'll quickly start to understand why and how complex this case is. Here's an example of one of my many conversations with Ashley. There is a ton to figure out here because I'm going to send you something else. That I'm same, same message, same header, but something I found in this is a fucking December 1st date and time. So I agree as far as finding someone that knows what the fuck they're looking at because look at this. And again, it's the same fucking message. That's at the very bottom. It's all from the, the header from the one message that we're questioning. The, you're not going to like my next move, I'm telling you. Clicked on original message. I had only just started figuring out how to read headers, the original headers. But it says, 8.58 p.m. delivered after two seconds. So we need a supercomputer geek. Oh, I forgot about this, too. In her Google photos, there's a set of screenshots of black numbers. Those are from Britt's phone. Those are um, numbers Brit blocked, which, by the way, in case you didn't catch that, screenshots of Brit's phone. It was wiped when the cops got it. They still have it. Brit's phone? I thought we never yeah, found the- Brit's phone. Right, the phone that was never found? Yeah, that one. Jessica took it to when she found it on the back floor of the car. Or the other car, depending on which message you read. This is one of the many conversations Ashley and I have had. After hours and hours of conversing and looking over hundreds of screenshots, emails, JPEG email exchanges, and lots of other information Ashley provides, feeling overwhelmed would be a substantial understatement. I honestly felt like I couldn't keep up. Normally, when I interview people, I'm usually the one asking questions and steering the conversation. But at this point, I was just taking notes. 
figuring out what information I had in front of me that was relevant. Keeping up with all the different individuals and alias names, it was as if someone came to my desk and dropped boxes filled with random files. It's like having a thousand pieces to a puzzle and 99% of them will never fit. My investigation into Brittany's case has been nothing like the first two I worked on. To the best of my ability, I will attempt to unweave this tangled web. You're going to hear me confront the ones who need to be questioned, even when it meant putting my own safety at risk. I have a message for the members of the Missing Brittany groups on Facebook. I've been a member for almost a year now. I've been watching and reading your guys' posts and comments. I haven't posted in the group pages for my own reasons. But just know I've been watching, holding my tongue. But now, the time has come. You guys are going to hear what I discovered. You're going to hear the truth. Lastly, if you have something you want to share, I strongly advise you do it now. The clock's ticking. This message is for those close to the case. They know who they are. Next time on Hide and Seek. You're Brittany's cousin. Yes. Grandma said that dinner was ready, and then we ate. I remember eating, and I was playing on the computer while I was doing that. I remember we were done with dinner. Brittany walked into the laundry room, came in with a basket of laundry. I remember they went outside, and I went outside because my dad was out there. Me and Brittany passed each other there in the sunroom. She was she was already here with with this fella, wherever she was. She was already here when me and the boys got here. We parked right next to the vehicle. So I just assumed it was Sheldon's car. He was just staring at the front door. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Hide and Seek. If you'd like to take a more active role in the hide-and-seek community, come interact with us. Share your thoughts, opinions, and theories in the hide-and-seek podcast discussion group. Find us by searching hide-and-seek podcast discussion group on Facebook.